Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. The opening in your Bibles to Mark, to the Gospel of Mark. After a, a gathering one Sunday morning, a church member came up to the pastor and he said, Pastor, today I loved your sermon. It reminded me of the peace of God and the love of God. Well, the pastor was thrilled. No one had ever said anything like that to him before. So he said, man, tell me why. And the guy said, well, brother, it was like this. It reminded me of the peace of God because it passed all understanding. And it reminded me of the love of God because it endured forever. (laughs) So today we're going to begin a series on the gospel of Mark. And I want you to know, especially if you're our guest, that I try really hard to teach in an understandable way, but at the same time, not not dumb it down. I try to make it deep, but uh, understandably, I don't know how well I do at that. But the, on the enduring forever part, I know I'm a little bit guilty of that. My mother tells me all the time. So uh, forgive me for uh, enduring uh, being too long. Jesus is at the center of, of all we want to be and all we want to do individually and as a church. And so I want you to know, I have a desire. I almost feel compelled for, to, to point us to Jesus and remind us about Jesus and take us to Jesus uh, often. I think all the, Bibles, all the books of the Bible are, they're God's word. They're all important for us. But I, but I think some books need, we need to go back regularly to some of the books, maybe more often than others. And, and some of those that I think we should go to are the stories about Jesus. We need to keep Jesus out in front of us because it's really all about us following Jesus and, and, and being like the Lord Jesus. So that's what we're going to do for the next few months. We're going to go back and we're going to look at Jesus I thought this series might be a shorter than it's going to be. It's going to take us probably into the winter, um, but that'll be all right because we'll be talking about Jesus. Mark is believed to be the, the first biography written about the life of Jesus. His biography or his story of the life of Jesus is the shortest. And the reason for that is it doesn't record for us the long discourses of, of Matthew or of Luke or John. All those other gospels record long teaching series of Jesus. But Mark, Mark doesn't do that. He's more just matter of the fact. Here's what Jesus did and not even so much what he taught, although there will be some things that, that he taught. Um, he wrote in a simple way for people to understand. His actual opening line for his book is the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. We're gonna look at that, we're gonna look at that opening statement in a little bit more detail in just a few moments. But let me see if I can't just uh, kind of give you some context for who Mark was and, and what led him to write. History records for us that Mark, also known as John Mark, is the author of this biography of Jesus. John Mark was not one of the original disciples of Jesus. He was probably a boy during that time, maybe even a teenager during that period. Although the disciples were probably very young themselves, maybe even teenagers themselves, Mark was younger uh, than them. We know him as the son of Mary who provided a place for the disciples to meet in Acts chapter 12. And many speculate that John Mark, who wrote this biography that we're going to be looking at, that he was the young man in the Garden of Gethsemane that ran away naked. 
Now, um, you know, there was a lot of confusion how he lost his clothes. I don't know. I don't think he was there naked. I think he lost his tunic as he's running away. But uh, some speculate that he was the young man in the Garden of Gethsemane that night when Jesus was arrested. He set out on the first missionary journey alongside Barnabas and Paul. He was Barnabas's cousin, Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. But somewhere along that trip, he, he returned. He, he didn't follow through with Paul and Barnabas. He stopped in the middle and said, I want to go home, and he went home. And for whatever reason, Paul didn't want to take Bar- uh, John Mark on the next journey when they went on it. You know, he said, ah, we're not taking John Mark. Remember, he deserted us along the way. And Barnabas said, yeah, we are going we are, we are to take him. And, and they had a falling out over that. Barnabas took John Mark and Paul took Silas and they separated. But somewhere along the way, the reasons for which Paul wouldn't take John Mark, the second go around, uh, dissipated. And years later, he became one of Paul's mighty men. I like to call him one of Paul's mighty men, one of Paul's associates in ministry. Paul said, I have need of him. Send him to me. By the way, I just want to say, I don't think Barnabas took John Mark that second time because he was his cousin. I think he took him because Barnabas, that's the kind of man Barnabas was. In fact, it's kind of funny, and I mean, let me just go off script here a little bit and talk about Paul. So here's Barnabas. Nobody wants to have anything to do with Paul, and Barnabas goes and gets Paul and takes him under his wing because he believes in him, and he really introduces him to the church. And so here's Barnabas wanting to take John, Mark, and Paul. Ah, oh, Paul, his memory wasn't there anymore, right? He, he should have remembered, wait a minute, wait a minute. Barnabas had such compassion and stuff. I think that's why he went and took John, Mark a second time. But anyway, more importantly, probably than anything I've said so far, is that history records that John, Mark, and, uh, and Peter became really close to the point that, that Peter would write in his second, first letter, he would write and say, John is like a son to me. So, so John Mark became really close to Peter. In history records, uh, historians basically say that Mark's biography is really going to be Peter's recollections. These are Peter's stories that he told John Mark, and John Mark wrote them down. Maybe, maybe that's why Mark doesn't have as many of the discourses, right? Um, Although Luke wasn't there for discourses either, so that may that blows that theory. But but anyway, he's writing down Peter's Peter's recollections, and I thought about this: what brought Peter and John Mark together? What knit their hearts together? And maybe, just maybe, what about this? What if both of them had this failure in the, their lives that God had restored? Then maybe that maybe that has something to do with why their hearts were so knit together. Remember, Peter denies Jesus. And John Mark, he doesn't deny Jesus, but he quits in the middle of that journey. And somewhere along the line, they both get restored. And maybe that's kind of what brought them together. Who knows? But uh, scholars believe that Mark was in Rome with Peter in the mid-50s, and that's when he wrote this, uh, this biography. And if indeed that's true, we can assume that he wrote this biography for the Gentile men and women of, of Rome, where he was at the time. And as he begins this this story, this good news of Jesus, his opening line, the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, uh, this whole book, this whole biography is going to be about why Jesus is good news. 
So over the course of the, the next few weeks and months, we're going to be looking at why Mark is trying to tell us this, Jesus, is good news for all of us. And we're going to come back to that verse at the end of this morning. But as Mark gets underway, here's what he, I believe, wants to do at the very beginning. He wants to give us five quick facts about Jesus he doesn't talk about his birth, but he wants to give us five quick facts that he, believe are, he believes are very important to the good news of Jesus. And I want to point them out to you and show them to you. So here's the first, uh, the first truth, fact, whatever we want to call it, that Mark wants us to understand. The first one is this. The good news of Jesus was foretold by the prophets of old. Let's read the verse, verse two. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So right off the bat here, I've, I've got to talk to you about a problem. Remember I told you I want to be understandable, but I want to also be deep. So we have a little problem here. And the problem is that, you know, we didn't get the Bible the way you might think. There weren't, there weren't Xerox machines or copy machines and they just put the copy of the Bible down and photocopied it, you know, after somebody wrote it. That's not how it got passed down. It got passed down by people writing, writing it out by hand. And today we, we have just literally thousands of copies uh, or hundreds, maybe hundreds of copies might be more exact, but we have hundreds of copies of Mark's, uh, of Mark's biography. And guess what? They don't all exactly agree. This is one place where the, not all the copies agree. Some of them say, as it's written in the prophets, verse two, others say, as it's written in the prophet Isaiah. That's called a textual variant. I know this is kind of technical stuff, but this is, that's what we call a textual variant, the text vary. And so which of those did Mark really write? Did he write that it's Isaiah the prophet who says, or did he write as it says in the prophets? Well, I don't know that we'll ever know. The oldest text that we have uh, say Isaiah says. The newer texts that we have, in other words, they're not as old as the oldest ones, those say as it's written in the prophets, which of those is correct. Well, you know, I'm not sure. I think the reason for the difference is if Mark wrote, uh, as the prophets say, somebody down the road changed it to Isaiah because he quotes from Isaiah in, in what he says. But, but he also, his opening quote there, uh, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, is actually from Malachi, the prophet Malachi. And so, so some people may have read, says, as it's written in Isaiah, the prophet, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's Malachi. We have to correct that. And they corrected Mark's, uh, Mark's words. It could have been that. Um, I don't know which one it is, to be honest with you. I don't know which one. And I think the reason it says it's written, as it's written in Isaiah, the prophet, is because Isaiah was the greater prophet. And, and so Mark is highlighting Isaiah in his, in his, in his comment on the prophets, okay? But, but don't get bogged down in that. I just want you to understand. I don't think, I, I don't think, I think Mark's trying to make this point, and I want you to understand it. It's that the good news of Jesus isn't just something that happened. It's not just something that's sort of like an afterthought for someone. What, what Mark's trying to tell us is that the good news of Jesus is something that God had been planning all along from the very beginning. This isn't, the prophets foretold it. The prophets told us that this was God's plan. That's what he wants us to understand. In the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, as Ephesians starts off, it says that God has devised a plan that began before creation ever was made. So before God ever made anything in creation, he had a plan. 
One of the things the Bible says is that God is omniscient and he's all-powerful. Omniscient means he knows everything. He has foreknowledge. He, He knows things before they are. You say, well, how does he know things before they are? I absolutely have no idea how he knows things before they are. But he did. And knowing things before they were, he predetermined this plan to rescue us from death. He did it before he ever created anything. He devised a plan. And the plan was that he himself would come and bear in his life the penalty of death so that one day we might be rescued from death. God chose Jesus through whom he would rescue us. And this has been his plan from Genesis to Revelation in your Bible. This is the plan. God's been, God instituted this plan from the very beginning and he's been working his plan. God is so smart and God is so great and God is so big that God can work his plan. He can still give us autonomy from himself and work his plan all the way through. And and that's what Mark wants you to understand. This was God's plan from the very beginning. Mark reminds his readers that God predicted Jesus and the good news of Jesus centuries before it came to pass. And so the prophet Malachi, and I'm going to quote him a little bit, a little bit more than, uh, than Mark did, but, but Malachi says, see, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And in Mark's good news biography, he then quotes Isaiah says that this messenger is going to be like a voice in the wilderness crying out, which is true. But Malachi continues and he says, the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in, see, see he is coming, says the Lord of armies. So so Malachi tells us that God's going to send his messenger ahead of him and then all of a sudden the Lord will be in his temple. And by the way, I know Mark's not talking about this, but that's exactly what happened. The messenger came ahead of Jesus and then all of a sudden Jesus The son of God, God become one of us, is in his temple. And so the messenger came preparing his way and his name was John. And that brings us to the second thing that John wants us to know. I mean, excuse me, that Mark wants us to know. This good news was announced by John, predicted by God, announced by John. Verse four, John came baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I, and I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you in water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, Mark doesn't go into any details of John's life. He just kind of, there he is, right? We know from the other biographies that John himself was a miracle baby. He was a gift from God to some old parents that hadn't been able to have any children. He was the cousin of Jesus. But the important thing is that he is the one that was announcing that Jesus was coming. He was the one who had been given the task of preparing the people and announcing to them, this king has now come. So how did he do that? Well, look at the text. He did that by calling people, uh, by calling their attention to their sins and exhorting them to confess their sins and to turn from their sins, even asking them to outwardly show their repentance by baptism. Here's just a little side note. You know, in, in those days, Jews baptized Gentiles. Most of us in this room are Gentiles. 
And uh, in, in the Jews baptized anybody who wanted to follow Yahweh, anybody who wanted to be a part of the first covenant, they baptized them as a way of washing all of them. John comes along and says to the Jews, listen, you all need to be washed. You all need to be cleansed. And he gave them the sign that was for the Gentiles, wash yourself, repent of your sins. And he said, prepare yourselves, get ready for the coming of the Lord. Now, evidently, John uh, was a strange person to see, right? He, he wasn't like the normal folks of his day. He lived in the wilderness, not in a town. He ate locusts, he ate bugs, which was, I think, you know, that, that would have been weird. He ate honey and he dressed in camel hair. I heard somebody say that camel hair, it's not like he had a camel skin on, but camel hair was the, the cloth, it's how they made the cloth of the poor man. So he had basically poor clothing. So I was saying, I, I've always thought of John in the wilderness with his camel hair as this wild and crazy person. I can remember as a young man, y'all remember the far side? I think I have it, is it up there? This always reminded me of John. How nature says, do not touch a rattlesnake, a blowfish, a cat like that. And then that guy standing over there is John the Baptist. <laughs> At least in my mind, that's how John was to the people. But you know what? They, they weren't afraid of him. They were drawn to him in his strangeness. So that, so that it says in one of the other biographies that everybody was going out to him. Everybody was going out uh, to, to hear John. And he was calling them to repentance, to cleanse themselves. And indeed, that's exactly what they were doing. John said to them, he said, in preparing them for Jesus, he said, hey, get ready, cleanse yourself, turn from your sin. But he also told them some things about Jesus also. He said, this one, that this king that's coming after me, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. And you, you probably remember this, but the, the job of the lowest slave in that day would have been to take care of the feet of, of travelers and people. So what John is saying, I don't, even, I, can't, I don't even get high enough to be the lowest servant to take care of Jesus. And then he said, I baptize you with water. I'm baptizing you with cleansing from your sin. He said, but he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I don't know that they understand that or understood that, but I think we have a better understanding of that, that God has given us his Holy Spirit. And then he lives within us and he helps us and he should help us anyway, turn from sin and walk in faithfulness to God. Number three, the good news, John, uh, Mark is telling us the good news of Jesus was confirmed by God. So verse nine, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and, and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So one day John is baptizing by the Jordan and Jesus shows up and he says, I want you to baptize me. The other biographies tell us that John argues with Jesus. He doesn't want to do it, but in the end he does. But the reason I think that John is including this is he wants you to understand at the beginning of the story of the good news of Jesus is God is validating Jesus as being good news. The spirit of the God, it says the, the sky, what does it say about the sky? It says, um, was torn open. I, I don't know what that means other than maybe, maybe the clouds started moving. There was a, a dove that descended on Jesus. And in my mind's eye, and again, I don't know that this is correct, but in my mind's eye, there's a dove that's circling. 
And, and I think the dove comes down and lights on Jesus. I, that seems to be the picture that Mark is painting in the story paints for us. But, the, but the, the confirmation part comes when those who are present hear a voice, the voice of God in the heavens, and the voice says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And I don't think there is a doubt whatsoever that, that God is confirming Jesus in front of everybody that's there, that this is a confirmation uh, to them. And I think that's one of the things that Mark wants you and me to see, that the good news of Jesus was confirmed by God. And we have eyewitness accounts of it. But I want to tell you something else. I, I think that this is not just a confirmation for John. Because John, by the way, John had said, God told me in one of the other biographies, John said, God told me this is what's going to happen when the king comes. And, and so it's a testimony to John. It's a confirmation for him. It's a confirmation for everybody on the shore. But I want to tell you something. I really believe that this is a confirmation for Jesus himself. And one of the reasons that I would say that, well, a couple of reasons, but here's the first one. You are my beloved son. The spirit is not, God is not speaking to the crowd. Hey, this is my beloved son. This, you are my beloved son, Mark says. But, but regardless, I think this is a confirmation for Jesus. You know, there's, there's study after study that says the, conf, the, the confirmation or the blessing of a father on his children is immeasurable as to what happens in the life of those children. And, and, and moms and women, I mean, I'm not taking anything away from your blessing, but there is something about a dad who blesses and affirms and confirms his children and basically says things to his children like, I'm proud of you and I love you and I'm well pleased with you. I talked to someone here recently who their entire life, their father never said to them, I'm proud of you, I love you. Um, you've done well, nothing like that in their entire life. And I know this is, this is an off-topic application, but if I could just say this before I move on. Dads, let me ask this question. Dads, have you affirmed your children anytime recently? And by the way, you're never too old, dad, to affirm your children. You're never too old to say to your old sons, you know, that are 40. Yeah, that's kind of old, Landon. So your old sons, right? Your old sons, I love you, or I, I'm so proud of you. It's, it's, it's never too late to do that. That's an off-topic application, but I believe that's what God is doing for Jesus there, and He's affirming Jesus. He's confirming. Mark's including it because it's a confirmation from God, but I think it's a confirmation to Jesus. Remember, don't forget this. He's fully God, but He's fully man. Number four, this good news was resisted by Satan. Verse 12, immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. After God affirms him, the adversary resists him. And this, this wasn't a surprise to God. It wasn't a surprise to Jesus, I don't think. But the spirit leads him. Mark says the spirit drives him into the wilderness to be resisted, and he, and, and he is resisted by Satan. We don't know much about who Satan was. The word Satan is, is actually a transliteration of the word adversary. 
So in other words, if we were to lift the word adversary out of the Greek and make it an English word, we'd get Satan. That's where we get Satan from, okay? So there's lots of, dis- there's lots of discussion among believers over who exactly this adversary was. Some people say he was one of the Elohim, one of the spiritual beings that God created that led opposition against Yahweh. In the book of Job, we find the adversary, Satan, Satanas. We find him opposing Job in heaven before God. He's most likely the adversarial force in the Garden of Eden, okay? Mark, Mark doesn't tell us about the encounter there, but other biographies do. And Jesus wins, right? Jesus wins in that resistance by Satan. But the point I think Mark wants to make as he begins this good news is he wants to point out that from the very beginning, Jesus' ministry was resisted. It was resisted from the very, very start. It had to be resisted all along. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, we'll see Jesus' ministry resisted to the point even where one day Jesus turns to Peter and he said, you adversary, you Satan, get behind me. Get behind me. Number five. And the final thing that I think Mark is trying to point out to us here as he opens this book, this biography, is that the good news was launched by Jesus. Verse 14. After, Jesus, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near, Jesus said. Repent and believe the good news. The last thing about this good news, at least in these opening verses, is that Jesus is launching the kingdom and it's the kingdom of God that is the good news. Jesus says, the time has come, it's ready, it's been fulfilled, the kingdom has come near. Repent, change your mind, everybody. Change your mind, Jesus says, turn back, believe the good news, the kingdom is here. For centuries, the Jews had been waiting for this promise of God's kingdom. They'd been waiting for it, and they'd been looking for it. And he says, hey, the good news is here. The kingdom has begun, the kingdom has started. And for the next three years, Jesus would preach the same good news over and over and over again. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near. The kingdom of God is at hand. So Mark is writing to tell his readers about the kingdom. Now, that's the text. Let me, let me give us four takeaways this morning. Four takeaways for you and me this morning. Here's the first one from from Mark's opening remarks. Here's the first one. The king God promised has come and his name is Jesus. The king we've been waiting for, the king we've been looking for, not necessarily you and me, but the king at that day that everyone was looking for, he has come. He's been born and now he's on the scene. Now we're we're not Jews, most of us. We're Gentiles, okay? So we weren't privy to the promises of God. In fact, in Romans 9, Paul says, what what privilege, or not privilege, what uh, benefit is it to be Jew? And he says the, the, the benefit is that they had all the covenants and the pronouncements and the promises of God. They knew about the king, right? Gentiles really didn't know about the king. But when the king came, the king said, guess what? I'm not just for the Jews. I'm for the Gentiles. I'm for everybody. And the king has come. So the takeaway that I want you to see this morning is that Isaiah told us this king was coming and he would reign with justice and righteousness forevermore. 
Daniel said that when this king comes, an everlasting kingdom would be given to him and that kingdom would not pass away. The psalm that we read last week, Psalm 146, says that the kingdom of God is forever and ever. And what Mark is trying to tell us and the takeaway is our king has come. Jesus is our king. And I'm telling you guys, Jesus needs to be here for all of us and every other leader and every other person in authority over us needs to be under King Jesus because our king is here. And that's the takeaway that I want you to see. Paul would say of Jesus, Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign. Sovereign means king. Jesus is the only blessed sovereign, the king of kings, or if you would, the sovereign of sovereigns and Lord of lords. It says of Jesus in Revelation, it says on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, king of kings and Lord of lords. So here's the takeaway, write it down, write it on your heart. The good news is that our king has come. Jesus, our king, the good king, the great king, the king of all kings has come. Takeaway number two, the key to receiving him. And I didn't like the word receiving him, but I didn't know what to put there. But, but the takeaway is the key to receiving him is confession and repentance. Maybe the key to walking with him is confession and repentance. The key to owning him as your king is confession and repentance. And the reason I say that is because John came preparing the way for the king, and this is what he said, prepare your hearts for him. Repent, confess your sins, wash yourself of your sins, turn back from your sins. That was his message. He said the key to receiving him is to confess your sins and to turn from it and to repent. And mark your repentance with baptism. Mark your repentance by being willing to baptize yourselves like you require of the Gentiles when they confess their sins. You do the same. I may be wrong here, but I, I think that entrance into the kingdom of God has not changed. It begins by us recognizing our need of forgiveness and turning from our sin and turning towards God. So the takeaway this morning that I want to give to all of us is turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin and follow after Jesus. That, that I think is a takeaway for us. Jesus once was with a rich man. Remember this? And the rich man wanted to follow him and be a part of his kingdom. And Jesus said, hey, get rid of all your riches and come and follow me. And the guy said, can't do it. Can't do it. And he went away sad. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and he says, man, it's really, really hard, nearly impossible for the rich man to come into the kingdom of God. Why is that? Why, why is it hard? I mean, what, you know, does God hate rich people? No, not at all. It, the reason why I believe that Jesus said that is because rich people have everything they need. And by, and by the way, guys, we're, we're amongst the rich of the world. But rich people have everything they need and they don't see their need of God. And I think what John was trying to tell them and what I am trying to make the takeaway be for you and me today is that we need the Lord. We need the Lord. And in Romans chapter one, you know, it tells us that God has revealed the knowledge of himself in creation to all of us. Romans three says he's put it in our hearts, but people suppress the knowledge of God. They block it out. They say they don't need him. Folks, we need him. We need him. We need him because of our sin. We need him because of our brokenness. 
And, and so I'm, I feel like John is, was calling them and I'm saying the takeaway for you and me is, hey, we need to walk in repentance. We need to walk in confession. We, we, need, to, um, we need to be cleansed daily of our sin by the Lord Jesus, by, by his forgiveness. We need to seek him daily for that. Repentance. I understand that repentance, in one sense, the change of mind, is, is a one-time deal. I change my mind about who Jesus is, and I begin to follow him. I get that. But there is a repentance, a turning from sin, that I need to wake up every morning, and I need to say, God, I want to walk in faithfulness to you today. I want to I walk in holiness. I want to walk faithful to your will. I want to do what you want me to do. And it's not easy, is it? I mean, we all struggle with our brokenness. Unfortunately, right now in the kingdom of God, God hasn't rid me of my brokenness. He hasn't rid you of your brokenness. And so you're gonna fight against your brokenness your entire life. There's coming a day where somehow, some way, God's gonna rid me of my brokenness. And I look so forward to that. But in the meantime, I'm broken, I still fail, and we need to wake up every day and confess our sins and, and turn to God for repentance and cleansing daily as we walk with him. So my takeaway, I wonder, do you need to repent? Do you need to repent? I'm talking to you believers now. I'm not talking to, some of you may need to repent and begin to follow Jesus as your king. And you need to start there, but, but for you who follow Jesus, some of you may need to repent. You need to, you need to say, oh man, man, I have just... Anyway, you may need to repent. Number three takeaway, resistance is part of following Jesus. And I don't mean that you have to resist, although you do have to resist. You have to resist against the old nature and against our sin and the desires of our flesh. We have to resist that. But I'm talking about you will be resisted as a follower of Jesus. The adversary of Jesus did seem, uh, the adversary of Jesus did Excuse me, my notes are wrong. The adversary of Jesus is still around. He's still around. And just as he opposed Jesus, he opposes us. And Jesus warned us of that. He said in John 15, 20, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they, if they resisted, if he resisted me, he's going to resist you. Jesus told us to be prepared for this and that we would have adversaries from the very beginning to the very end. We're going to have people that are opposed to us. Now, I don't mean to say that the adversary, the adversary is opposing you. I mean, maybe you rise to the level where he will oppose you, right? I think most of us, you know, I don't think he really wants to waste much time. I think he has bigger fish to fry than me and you. But the Bible says that the adversary is not alone, that, there's, that he has a whole company of adversaries and, and they do oppose us and they do work against us. And so be on your guard. Stay close to Jesus. Do you remember what James told us? He said, when the adversary's there, resist him, and the adversary will what? Finish it. Flee from you, right? Flee from you. And finally, last takeaway, the kingdom of God that, that Jesus talked about, it, it has begun. It's here. It's now. 
It's not coming in the future. It's here now. That's my final takeaway for us. The kingdom of God has come. Now, I talk a lot about the return of Jesus, and I talk a lot about the institution of God's kingdom on earth. And, um, you know, I, I, I long for Jesus to come back. I long for the kingdom to return and for the resurrection of the dead. I long for Jesus to fix our broken world, to remove the curse. I long for that. I, I, I pray about it. I think about it. I want you to think about it. I want it to be, I want it to be what you think about too. I want you to think about the, the, the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven because Jesus has come back and he's established his kingdom and changed our world. But you know, I don't ever want to imply that the kingdom hasn't begun and isn't already here. It has already begun and it is here. And in Luke's biography, he records this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. They come and they ask him about the kingdom of God. They said, when will the kingdom of God come? And this is his answer. The king, this is chapter seven, uh, 17. The kingdom of God is, is uh, chapter 17, verse 20, I believe. The kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see here or there, for you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here now is what he says. Jesus compared the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. He says it's like a mustard seed. It's a small seed. You plant it and it becomes a large plant. He said it's like leaven in the dough, right? You put a little bit of leaven in the dough and it'll eventually permeate and fill the whole lump of dough. Jesus is telling us the kingdom has begun. It had small beginnings and it's going to culminate in the return of Jesus and the institution of everything that Jesus has promised us. But the kingdom is here and it's growing. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and I know if, if, if you're not real versed with your Bible, I don't want to lose you, but in the Old Testament, there is a, a prophet named Daniel. And he lives in a time where he's been captured and he's a slave, but he's a, he's a real important slave. He kind of leaves and he interprets dreams. And the king of the land has a dream and Daniel interprets the dream. Here was the dream, part of the dream. Part of the dream was a, on a mountain, a rock would be cut out of the side of the mountain, would roll down the mountain and would hit this statue, break it all up. And then that stone would become a mighty mountain that would fill the earth, Right? That was the dream. And then Daniel interprets it. And this is what he says. He says, the stone is the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is going to roll down the hill and it's going to destroy all the other kingdoms. And then it'll become a mountain. This kingdom of God will become a mountain that will fill, that will fill the earth. And so that, that is, that is this promise from the book of Daniel. This is what I believe, the, the, the stone rolling down the mountain is Jesus. And Jesus instituted his kingdom and it's becoming that mountain that's spreading throughout all the earth. And men and women from every nation, every tribe, they're joining the kingdom of God. Our church family is an outpost of that kingdom. We, we, the kingdom is spreading everywhere and God is, you know what my job and your job is? It's to help people become part of that kingdom. It's to help people become disciples of our king. That's kind of our job. Yeah, Jesus is coming again, and the kingdom will look different. I mean, it's going to be uh, all the enemies of God will be destroyed. All wickedness will be removed. The curse will be lifted. The world will be very different. But the kingdom is now, and you can be a part of the kingdom, and Jesus reigns, and he wants you to join 
his kingdom. So my question in ending is this, will you? Will you join the kingdom of God? Our church family is part of that kingdom. And you can be a part of, you can join the resistance, you know, and I don't mean anything political by that. You can join the resistance to the world and you can be a part of his kingdom. So let's bow our heads. Those are the four takeaways. I'd like you to just take a moment and um, in the quietness and just, I'm going to repeat them for you again. The first takeaway is King Jesus is here. The King has come. The second takeaway is that the way to approach him is through repentance and, uh, and confession and recognizing our need of him and turning to him. The third takeaway is that if you become a part of his kingdom, you will be resisted. You will be resisted. You have to resist, but I think Mark's takeaway is just as Jesus was resisted, you're going to be resisted. And the final is the kingdom the king, the king is here. The kingdom has begun and you can be a part of the kingdom. How do you get to be a part of the kingdom? You know, Jesus says, whosoever will can become a part of my kingdom. You just have to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus as king. I think it's Paul who says that one day every, every knee will bow to King Jesus. So I think there's a sense in which one day we'll all be forced you know, in the sense by just acknowledgement, we'll be forced to recognize that Jesus is the, the creator God and the king above all kings. But right now I can bow the knee to King Jesus myself, personally. I, I can say, God, I want you to be my king. And I'm inviting you this morning to do that, to say, Lord, I want you to be my king. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.